Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, welcome to Royals Review Radio. This is uh, your sometimes host, Max Reaper, Editor-in-Chief of Royals Review. And uh, with the season around the corner, we just wanted to take a, t- a chance to talk to some of our division rivals uh, to get a look at what they've been up to all offseason and uh, preview their teams for the upcoming season. And today we're uh, lucky enough to be joined by uh, Josh Nelson, who uh, is editor of the Southside Sox, where you can catch all your latest White- Chicago White Sox news. Josh? Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely, Max. Thanks for having me on. First of all, I have to ask you, uh, you know, I know everyone was cheering for the Cubs last October, but I know there are a few <laughs> fan bases that weren't, uh, probably White Sox fans. How did it How did it feel seeing the Cubs host, hoist the trophy finally after all these years? You know, for I would say it might have been split between the White Sox fan base, honestly, Max. I think some of them were happy that, because as a White Sox fan, it's just natural. You have very close friends that are Cubs fans. You have family members that are Cubs fans. One of my best friends is a Chicago Cubs fan, and he remembers 1989 where Will Clark and the San Francisco Giants just tore out the heart of the Cubs. And I felt for him, and I was happy for him when the Cubs won the World Series. It's just a bit humorous now because Cubs fans don't want to admit it, and Anthony Rizzo has even spoken to this, that he Anthony Rizzo believes the Chicago Cubs will never be disliked like the Boston <laughs> Red Sox and the New York Yankees. Uh, he doesn't understand the city of Chicago because after the World Series parade, it's turned up another notch of the hatred from White Sox fans to Cubs fans. We're going to be looking at a fan base that I do believe is going to become like the next Boston Red Sox fan base. They're going to be annoying. And uh, on that side of Chicago, Wrigleyville, the north side, uh, a lot of people don't know this. It's became quite the transplant city. Uh, a lot of college graduates are moving to that side of the city, and the Cubs are getting a lot of new fans that way. And unfortunately, like anything else in Chicago, once things get popular or one side of town gets really popular – uh, things get expensive, and holy cow, to use a term from Harry Carey, Cubs, Cubs tickets are expensive, and they're remodeling the area, uh, which is nice. Uh, they're going to have a brand-new hotel across the street. Uh, they're going to have a nice little courtyard outside of the stadium. Uh, it, it's going to look terrific. It's going to be expensive, and 
I guess as a White Sox fan, we're just going to look at the diehard Cubs fans, and in a way I'm going to feel sorry for them because they're going to get priced out. And since that World Series title for the Chicago Cubs, I'm interested in how their fan base evolves now, finding finally winning a championship. But yeah, when the Cubs and White Sox play against each other this summer, uh, the rivalries turned up just a little bit uh, between the two fan bases. Yeah, <laughs> What I, what I would have found, I think, most galling about um, the celebration last year is all the graphics that, that showed, like, years since Chicago has won a baseball <laughs> championship. And they uh, everyone seems to have forgotten the White Sox won it in 2005. And, uh, I know. That was horrible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, in case anyone forgot, the Chicago White Sox didn't win a World Series in 2005, which wasn't all that long ago. Um <laughs> It's, it's it's been a more it's been a little leaner I think the last couple seasons uh they you know last winter you guys actually had a pretty bold off season uh trying you know getting Todd Frazier and David Robertson uh but then you know things didn't go the way you know uh, things didn't go as expected and mm-hmm. so this past winter they changed directions they trade away Chris Sale trade away Adam Eaton possibly others on the move um, are White Sox fans on board with this new rebuilding movement or is it even a rebuilding movement or are they just kind of reloading? Ooh, you touched on a conspiracy theory, which <laughs> I'll, I'll speak to in a moment, but I think White Sox fans are a lot smarter than people give credit to. Uh, they understand the situation with the ball club. And I think White Sox fans, Max are just happy that the franchise has chosen a direction. <laughs> and at Sox fest, uh, attending there, covering the event via media, you just got the sense that White Sox fans totally understood where the team was, and they're very happy and excited, and they want to see more of Yoan Mankata, Lucas Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, and they want to see the progression of Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson's jersey was the most popular one at Sox Fest this year, which was quite the surprise. So I'm excited to see White Sox fans embrace this rebuild because I think it just it's very telling that they understand where this franchise is. Now, the conspiracy theory. Chris Sale and Adam Eaton, there's no doubt about it. They butted heads with the front office. Chris Sale cut up a bunch of uniforms because he felt uncomfortable pitching in it. Uh, And I think he was just very frustrated with the front office. Because honestly, Max, that's just insane. For a major (laughs) league baseball player to cut up all the uniforms except one, which that's a great story I'll tell you in a moment, that... To do that, something had to push him over the edge. And I think pushing Chris Sale over the edge was the fact that the White Sox just spun out of control after their 23-10 and 10 start. So because he butted heads with Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams, and he was very vocal during the whole Adam LaRoche saga as well, <laughs> defending Adam LaRoche, that some White Sox fans view trading Chris Sale to Boston as getting one of the head cases out of the clubhouse. The other head case is Adam Eaton, and this isn't anything new uh, as far as with Eaton because this is something that unnamed sources from the Arizona Diamondbacks said the same thing about Adam Eaton when he was traded to Chicago, and nobody from Chicago's point of view really understood why they, anyone would say that about Adam Eaton being a selfish baseball player from the outside. And I've interviewed Adam Eaton. He was very nice, uh, very as far as insightful on the time spending with people. Uh, But you now hear stories that he and Todd Frazier butted heads. And all those uniforms I told you about that were cut up, the only uniform that was in was Adam Eaton. Adam Eaton was in the clubhouse watching Chris Sale cut up a bunch of uniforms. (laughs) Instead of being the team leader and stopping Chris Sale from doing so, he kept his. 
So I don't know what that really speaks to as far as Adam Eaton as a person or a baseball player. Uh, but now he's in Washington and some White Sox fans who and they're very small in size, Max, who do not buy into the rebuild. They think and this is why I call it conspiracy theory. They think oh, the White Sox just got rid of the two head cases. <laughs> I, I don't know how to help these guys, uh, these fans, Max, because Chris Sale and Adam Eaton combined as far as wins above replacement are going to be worth 10 wins above replacement combined. Both of them, I, I'm assuming, are going to be worth more than five wins above replacement this upcoming year. You don't trade guys like that unless you're going in a direction of rebuilding. Uh, but that's the story out of Chicago right now because just like last offseason, yeah, the White Sox made a bold move. They traded for Todd Frazier. That was pretty much it. They didn't go the extra yard that they really needed to to help support a core that was led by Chris Sale and Adam Eaton. And in this offseason, yeah, they they won the winter meetings. They made the biggest news. They traded Chris Sale to Boston, and they traded Adam Eaton to the Washington Nationals. They have greatly enhanced their farm system. However, there is more work to be done. Speaking with general manager Rick Hahn at SoxFest, he said it so he said it himself in that the White Sox are closer to the beginning of this rebuild than to the end. So there is definitely more work to be done on the south side. Do you think Jose Quintana opens the season with the White Sox? And if, if not, where do you see him going? There are three teams that I think Jose Quintana makes the most sense pitching for in 2017. The Houston Astros, the New York Yankees, and the Pittsburgh Pirates. I do think he will start the year for the Chicago White Sox. I do expect him to be the opening day starter because, Max, I feel like those three teams, they need a couple of months of of just games to fully understand where their teams are at. The Houston Astros have made significant additions this offseason, and I really thought that they would have gotten a deal done for Jose Katana because, honestly, they really do need a better starting pitcher in that staff. I'm not sold on that pitching staff for Houston. That's not a staff that's going to overtake the Cleveland Indians or the Boston Red Sox in a playoff. It, it, it's just not. So for a franchise that's never won a World Series game, they've been to the World Series, that World Series that didn't exist in 2005, uh, <laughs> where they got swept by the White Sox, uh, for, for a franchise that's never even won a World Series game, and when you make the additions that they've made, trading for Brian McCann and signing Josh Reddick and having this uber talent in Carlos Correa and Jose Altuve, I mean, that is a team that has the best of both worlds. And I just figured they would take in that extra step in getting Jose Catana, but they haven't. The best spot for Jose Catana, as far as ballpark and a rising team, in my opinion, is the New York Yankees. The Yankees have the prospects that they can deal to get a deal done, and it doesn't completely empty out their farm system because I think the New York Yankees have the best farm system in baseball. That's my opinion. Other publications say the Atlanta Braves. That's fine. They have a great one, too. But I think the Yankees, in my opinion, have the best. And Jose Gatana pitching at Yankee Stadium, getting that support, I think he would just be a star in the Bronx, and he could be – that leader of that rotation mixed with their terrific bats that they've got in Gary Sanchez and Greg Bird and Aaron Judge that are now being incorporated into the lineup. And Jose Gatana's got a four-year deal. I just think that is that is a dream matchup in which the Yankees trade for Jose Gatana. It helps out both ball clubs because the White Sox could desperately use some more bats in their farm system. And the dark horse is the Pittsburgh Pirates. I don't think the Pirates are going to catch the Cubs. However, the Pirates also have a very good farm system, and the Pirates can piece together some prospects to get Jose Quintana. 
And with Garrett Cole becoming a free agent in a couple of years, they may let him walk knowing that they still have Jose Quintana leading the rotation mixed with some of their other young pitchers as well that they have, uh, especially one in Mitch Keller that many scouts are high on that they could let Garrett Cole walk and still be okay and still be a contending team because like, they have Jose Quintana leading the staff. So those are the three teams, and I think Jose Quintana will be traded by the J- July trade deadline. But from a White Sox fan perspective, Max, we're all rooting for Houston, New York, and Pittsburgh to have a terrific start <laughs> in 2017. Yeah, and it'll be kind of nice to see if Jose Quintana does get traded that people will start to – appreciate him a little bit more. I feel like he's been right. the most underrated pitcher of the last couple of years. And like, he seems to get the Royals quite, you know, he has, seems to have the Royals number more than often than not. So uh, we'll, we'll certainly be glad to see him get out of the division. Um, you mentioned, uh, you're talking about some, some uh, hotheads earlier. Uh, so we got to talk about Brett Laurie, who was released surprisingly <laughs> this week. Uh, certainly infamous to Royals fans uh, from his days more in Oakland, where he had a couple of um, confrontations with the Royals. But uh, he was still fun to hate when he was with the White Sox. Uh, seemed like a pretty surprising release. Can you uh, can maybe shed some light on why the White Sox were willing to let him go? I've got no clue. And that's <laughs> being honest with you, Max. I really thought that the White Sox would have kept Brett Lowry throughout spring training. And if he wasn't ready, put him on the disabled list. And when it was ready to take him off the disabled list, have him do a rehab assignment down in either Birmingham or Charlotte and then evaluate as far as his status then. Because let's be real. Yohan Mikata is going to get called up sometime to Chicago and he'll be the starting second baseman when he's called up. I think that's going to be June. So really, Brett Laurie was just going to be buying time for the White Sox starting games at second base from April to May until Mikata gets called up and Mikata takes over. Here's my conspiracy theory and what my gut tells me, because the rule is, Max, when it comes to the clubhouse for the White Sox, no matter how bad you think it is, it's worse. (laughs) I think Brett Laurie, and this is just my take, I don't have any sources that have confirmed my take, but my thinking is Brett Laurie asked out, because now you're hearing rumors from both uh, John Heyman of FanRag Sports and Jim Bowden from ESPN.com saying that four teams are interested in Brett Laurie. That's pretty damn quick. And if teams were interested in Brett Laurie, why didn't the White Sox make a trade with those teams? It would have not taken a lot to get Brett Lowry. Just throw a couple of arms that the White Sox can store in the minors that could help out get through a minor league season, and here you go. You got Brett Lowry. Uh, instead of just cutting the guy, and yeah, you only have to pay him $600,000 this year. But in my opinion, that doesn't really look good to other players if you're just going to be cutting guys like this. I mean, they cut John Danks last May, and they were totally cool eating $15 million and just paying John Danks to sit at home in Nashville, just chilling on his couch watching baseball. You know, Players look into that, and they and again, you have the whole Adam LaRoche situation too. There's some players in the league that look at that and say, yeah, that was a really crazy thing, and Adam LaRoche is crazy. But you also have some players that are like, the White Sox are jerks, and they did not handle that well. So that's something that I'm going to be paying attention to. When the White Sox want to be active again in free agency, how many players just totally shut out the White Sox, no matter how much money the White Sox want to throw at them? just because that's not an organization they want to play for. And 
as far as cutting Brett Lowry, that's just one of those decisions that I just have to scratch my head, Max, because still at this time, even though I understand he may have only started two months with the White Sox, he still has value. And if he signs with another team, the White Sox could have just traded him. Yeah, I do feel like there's more to the story that, that maybe we'll get out later. Um, and, you know, Laurie's, you know, he's an intense guy. I and mean, maybe you're right. There could be more, you know, behind the scenes stuff where maybe he was, he wanted out or he was being abrasive. Uh, we'll have to see. Um, you know, another one of our old friends, uh, James Shields, is with the hmm. White Sox. Uh, is he done? Is he washed up? Or is there something left in the tank? I mean, it seems like he was giving up a lot of home runs last year. And we know the ball was kind of, you know, flying out of parks in general last year. Uh, is, is there something he can do to adjust to kind of re- salvage his career? Or is, is it near the end of the line for, for a big game, James? Hey, he shut out the Cubs. <laughs> uh, James Shields was terrible. And that's putting it nicely for the White Sox last year. And James Shields, that trade just... There's a lot of White Sox fans that are very happy with the Rakan and they're optimistic. But man, when you mention James Shields, that optimism just flies out the window. <laughs> because that deal really never made sense. Because he wasn't pitching well in San Diego. And what, the White Sox were hoping that he was going to reverse fortune coming to the south side and pitching at a hitter-friendly ballpark? I mean, he wasn't pitching well at Petco Park in San Diego. For crying out loud, how was he going to pitch better in Chicago? So it seemed like the writing was on the wall, and yeah, it did not work out at all. And when you look at James Shields' metrics, he has been declining the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. and I think he's on the wrong side of 30 years old. And I'll be honest with you, Max, it's another John Dank situation with James Shields. If James Shields is not pitching well into May, the White Sox will eat the money and they will cut James Shields and let him sign somewhere else. And they'll be happy to pay him $15 million over the next two years for him to pitch somewhere else or sit on the couch. Uh, of course, the other $5 million would would have been him starting games in April and May because uh, the White Sox still owe him $10 million this year and they owe him $10 million next year. Uh, don't worry, the San Diego Padres are paying him more <laughs> for the watch him pitch in Chicago. That's how great of a deal James Shields has. And, you know, with Shields, he's got to look over his shoulder, man. I mean, when he was talking to reporters at spring training, he made a comment that he has nothing to prove when you look at his career, which, sure, James Shields has had a very good career as a major league pitcher, and he's had terrific seasons. And he was a big part of that Tampa Bay Rays team that made it to the World Series. But he's got a lot to prove to the White Sox fans, and he has said so much. So he kind of retracted his initial statement because he would follow that up with, I have nothing to prove, but I want to prove to White Sox fans that I'm still the pitcher that was as good as the guy that was opposing them before. And uh, we'll see. James Shields is going to get every opportunity in April and May uh, to start games. But if he's not performing well, Max, if his ERA is above six and he's just giving up home runs over and over again, and Lucas Giolito, which the White Sox received in the Adam Eaton trade, has a good start to Charlotte, and the franchise believes he's ready to come up and start games. The White Sox will cut ties with James Shields, let him go, and they'll call up the young guys to take over his starts. 
uh, the White Sox also changed uh, skippers. In fact, immediately right after the season, uh, they fired yeah. Robin Ventura. Who uh, they didn't fire him. They let him walk away on on his own accord. <laughs> they just let him walk out of the building on his own. Uh, yeah, that, that's another. That's another stupid thing that <laughs> happened in 2016. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll be sorry to see him go because we uh, we certainly enjoyed seeing his <laughs> his stupidified face every time that uh, the bullpen would blow up. Well, intentionally walking Jeff Francoeur. Like honestly, come on. I believe intentionally come walked Alcides Escobar once, which I didn't even know was legally possible. <laughs> oh my gosh! So anyway, yeah. the new manager is Rick Rent- Renteria. Um, what do you what do you expect with Renteria? What what's the kind of the vibe you get from him and our White Sox fans uh, excited about the the change? He's a breath of fresh air, and I think he's the perfect manager for the time the White Sox are going through right now. He loves the game of baseball. He's incredibly excited to come in and work every single day, which is the type of personality that you really need to lead the clubhouse when you are going through a transition, when you're incorporating younger players. Because as you know, Max, this is a marathon of a year. For any, for all the professional sports, I feel like baseball just drags on forever, uh, which is great because I love the game, but it does drag. And you do need that personality, I think, in the clubhouse that day in, day out keeps things fresh. And Renteria, I think, will be able to do that. He's learned a lot from previous managers he's worked for, like Bud Black, who's now the manager in Colorado when Renteria was uh, his assistant uh, as far as his bench coach out in San Diego. But Rick Renteria also has a chip on his shoulder. He wants to prove that he is a good manager because he got really screwed over when he was the manager of the Chicago Cubs. And he managed there for one year, and then Joe Madden suddenly became available, and the Cubs fired Rick Renteria, who really didn't do anything wrong, in my opinion, just because they wanted Joe Madden. Now, it's worked out for the Cubs. They've won, what, 100, 200 games with Joe Madden the last couple of seasons with him being the manager, and they won a world championship. So you can't blame the Cubs for making that move, because I think Joe Madden's a big part of the Cubs' success. But Rick Renteria has a chip on his shoulder. He wants to prove that he can work the White Sox through this rebuild, that he can lead the player development front. He can make Tim Anderson and Carlos Rodon reach their potential and become stars and groom Yohan Mikata and still have the veterans excited and being part of the rebuild like Jose Abreu because Abreu still has three years remaining on his deal. I think Rick Renteria is the right guy, and if the White Sox are able to turn this around, which I hope they do for Rick Renteria, that the White Sox stick with Renteria because he deserves to have a team if he's going to go through another rebuilding situation like this to manage a ball club that can that can uh, can contend. And I'd love to see that for him, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see, of course. But Rick Renteria is a breath of fresh air, and as far as his tactics, if he's anything like Robin Ventura, God, I hope not, uh, but we have a lot to learn on that front. Let's talk a little bit about the rebuild, um, since the future, I think, seems to be the focus, I think, for a lot of White Sox fans. Uh, I, I was actually just looking up, I was writing about teams that kind of greatly improved their, their farm system, at least according to the Baseball America organizational rankings in one year. And the White Sox, they went from number 23 uh, last year to number 5 this year. And, of course, the big reason why is the, the two trades, Chris Sale and Adam Eaton, talk about some of the young guys, some of the guys you maybe are most excited about, uh, and for the future, and maybe some names we might see as as soon as this year. 
Well, I think the names you're going to see this year is Yohan Mikata, Lucas Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, and I think you'll see Carson Fulmer more. Uh, for, so for, for sure, those four guys. And one of the guys that I'm really excited for, for the Kansas City Royals fans that are just prospect junkies, keep an eye on Alec Henson. Uh, even if you're a draft junkie as well, Alec Henson was picked number 49 in last year's draft. But Alec Henson in Oklahoma coming into his junior year was often regarded as a possible top five pick, if not the first pick in the draft. Oklahoma, as far as the baseball club, uh, really messed around as far as his work schedule. Uh, he would have a bad start, and they threw him into the bullpen as punishment. And then, then they would make him a starter again, and he would have a great start. And then he would have a couple weeks where he's a starting pitcher, and then he had one bad outing, and they threw him back in the bullpen. They, re- they really messed with him. And when the White Sox took him at pick 49, Nick Costell, the director of amateur scouting, just plainly told him, you're a starting pitcher. We're not going to throw you in the bullpen. Do not worry about that. We're going to groom you as a starting pitcher. We think you are a future major league starting pitcher. Prove it to us. And, man, he pitched terrific at great falls in rookie ball, and he had a great start in A ball with Kannapolis. I believe he will be in advance A this year, which is the Winston-Salem Dash for the White Sox in the Carolina League. And this is a guy I'm very bullish about, Max. I think that Alec Henson has the potential to be a better starting pitcher than Michael Kopech. Now, Michael Kopech looks like Noah Syndergaard, throws like Noah Syndergaard. He needs to work on his command so he could be a little closer to Noah Syndergaard. Kopech has a much higher ceiling. Kopech could be one of the best starting pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. Or he could be a lights-out closer because the guy can throw over 100 miles an hour. I mean, that's his floor, and his ceiling is an ace. And I'm trying to be safe here and find a nice, soft landing spot for my feelings about Michael Kopech. And I think Michael Kopech is going to be an above-average starting pitcher who will be worth three to four wins above replacement. But Alec Henson, I think the White Sox, especially with their player development getting better, thanks to their new director of player development from the Kansas City Royals, Chris Getz, that they will allow Alec Henson to develop properly. And I think Alec Henson is going to be part of the White Sox new core with the starting pitching that will join Lucas Giolito and Carlos Rodon and will be part of the pitching staff that gets this ball club turned around back to winning baseball. We are going to rue losing Chris Getz to the White Sox, aren't we? He's a, he's, he's, he's a board favorite. You know what? Chris Getz, I've been very impressed with him when I've spoken to him about White Sox player development. He and Nick Kostetler seem to be a great pair. And they are, you know, they became Rick Hahn's right-hand guys in this rebuild. Rick Hahn has really leaned on both Chris Getz and Nick Kostetler for their opinions about some of the prospects the White Sox have gotten in return as far as set up a game plan to develop these guys. And the White Sox definitely need a fresh face. They need a fresh voice within their organization on the player development front. And who better than someone that learned under Dane Moore and the Kansas City Royals because the Royals, I feel, Max, have been one of the better ball clubs in recent years at developing young guys. Like Paulo Orlando, what the hell? How did he become <laughs> a average Major League Baseball player? I mean, he was not good with the White Sox. And that's just a great example on how well the Royals can develop these guys and find great uses for them. So to have somebody like Chris Getz, who learned under the Royals, join the White Sox, 
I, I'm excited for that, and I can't wait to see the results. Now, we, we joke about Getz a little bit just because of his, his complete lack of power as a, as a player, but uh, uh, by, you know, by all accounts, he was a very quick study under Dayton Moore and, and did a very good job for them, and I guess it's a good compliment when you start losing personnel to other organizations. So, uh, yeah, we, we wish Getz all the best, and, and I think he will do well for the White Sox. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of new faces in Chicago on the south side. What's your best guess right now? We still got a month ago in spring training. What's the starting nine going to look like on opening day? Well, that's a good question because Charlie Tilson, who I would say would be the starting center fielder, he's injured. He hasn't seen any game action yet. Todd Frazier, also injured, haven't seen any game action yet. So those two, I'm going to pencil in. So Todd Frazier's at third base. Shortstop will be Tim Anderson. Second base to start the year for the White Sox is going to be Tyler Saladino, I believe. And Jose Bray will be at first base. Uh, Omar Narvaez is going to be the starting catcher for the White Sox. Uh, Giovanni Soto, somebody that baseball fans know about, former Chicago Cubs, uh, Texas Rangers. He's been around a lot of places. He'll be the backup catcher for the White Sox this year to give veteran presence to help out the new guy in Narvaez. In the outfield, left fielder, former Kansas City Royals, uh, Melky Cabrera. Uh, center field, Charlie Tilson. In right field, obviously Garcia, uh, and a DH, Matt Davidson, who used to be a top prospect for the Arizona Diamondbacks and just has really struggled ever since joining the White Sox and their farm system and has been in AAA for a while. Uh, I think he's going to get an opportunity now because this is a lost season for the White Sox. They're really not going to be a contending team, so I think there's no better no better opportunity now to give him some at-bats, and I think he'll be the designated hitter. But this is going to be a pretty fluid situation where a lot of names are going to be in the 25-man roster, and the White Sox are going to make a lot of transactions with players being called up back and forth between Charlotte, which is the White Sox AAA team in the International League, and in Chicago. But on opening day, that's I think that's what the starting nine is going to be, with Jose Catana being the opening day starter for the White Sox. And kind of looking out with a month ago before the season, how what if you had to predict how many wins the White Sox end up with and where they end up in the Central Division? Where what would you, what would you be your prediction? Oh, I've been steady with this. I think they're going to go seventy and ninety two and finish last in the American League Central, which is not a bad thing for a rebuilding team. And I've been telling this to everyone, Max, as far as being on other people's radio shows or podcasts. This year is not about how well the White Sox play as a team. This is all about paying attention to individual performances. How does Tim Anderson progress in his second year? Can Carlos Rodon make the progression in his third year? What are going to be the first impressions of Yohan Mikata, Lucas Giolito, and Ronaldo Lopez when they're called up, and how do they adjust to the major league game? Those are far more important, in my opinion, than how many wins the White Sox have. And going into opening day, this team is still too good <laughs> to not a top-five pick. And next year's draft. Uh, but I think that will rapidly change halfway through the year uh, where the White Sox make some major moves in trading Jose Katana and maybe finding a way to trade Todd Frazier, David Robertson, or even Nate Jones uh, out of the bullpen and see what they can get for those four players uh, to continue as far as with the rebuild. So the White Sox could surprise. They could be halfway decent in April. Uh, but enjoy that, White Sox fans, because it will not last, uh, and it will progressively get worse uh, as far as team performance goes. But again, it's all about the individuals, and uh, I don't think they're going to be a 100-loss team, uh, but they'll for sure be a 90-loss team, and 70 and 92 is a good guess, in my opinion. Yeah, I kind of feel like if you're not going to be really competitive, you might as well 
just finish at the bottom, get a good draft pick. Hope you know, maybe a couple of young guys show some signs, you know, during the season. But yeah, like like you said, I don't think it's about wins and losses. It seems to be more about who develops and how things develop, so that you know, for the next off season, they can kind of fill some gaps and and uh, build that next championship White Sox team that all Cubs fans will forget about. I'm sure. <laughs> No kidding. No <laughs> kidding. Well, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. You can catch uh, all the latest White Sox news and analysis at Southside Sox. And of course, you guys have a podcast as well, the Southside Sox podcast. Where can we catch you on Twitter? Uh, we are at Southside Sox. That's oh, simple. That's easy to remember. Okay. Well, Josh, we'll have to have you again on sometime, and maybe we'll, maybe uh, maybe midseason when the, the Royals and White Sox are both having their big fire sales. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Blue light specials. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Max. Now joining us is Matt Lyons. He's the managing editor of Let's Go Tribe, the best source of information uh, for all things related to the Cleveland Indians, the defending American League champion Cleveland Indians, I should say. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Max. Yeah, I just wanted to point out, first of all, that between you and I, we're fans of the last three American League champions. Uh, you know, how, you know, For us, we kind of had a long drought of 30 years before uh, reaching the World Series again. You guys... Had been there in 1997, which is, you know, at least within most fans' lifetimes. Uh, but you guys didn't take on the whole the the whole thing. Looking back now, like, is it kind of bittersweet? It is definitely bittersweet. Uh, right now, I can look back at it and think of how exciting everything was. But just at the time, the whole series was such a roller coaster. There was when well, the Indians were up three one, and it seemed like maybe they were going to win, and it was going to be happy times. But <laughs> but then Game Six happened, and that was. Even though the Indians still had a chance, that was when I got deflated with that game. And then Game 7, it was mostly down, and then Rajai Davis' home run gave me a little bit of hope again, and then that stupid rain delay just went and ruined everything. So right after Game 7 was really hard. Uh, it, it was a while before I wanted to write about anything again. <laughs> but now looking back at it, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad it happened, even if it didn't end up the way we wanted. And you mentioned that the Indians and Royals are both uh, the defending champs. Like Part of my brain doesn't like that. Because there's there's no way that can happen again, right? That the the team that lost the World Series will come back and win twice in a row. That's that's too much of a pattern to happen twice. So hopefully I'll be wrong, but I really want the Indians to do it and just repeat exactly what the Royals did uh, two years ago. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because the Royals kind of cited the fact that they came so close to winning it all in 2014 as, as motivation in 2015, and that's why they uh, kind of just took the league by storm that year and, and went all the way and, and won a championship. So yeah, maybe the Indians will use that as motivation. And, and we forget that, you know, going into the postseason, uh, they were pretty banged up. I mean, Indians beat writer, Paul Hoynes had, had already declared their season over, which kind of really rankled the Indians and it's a lot of the fans as well. And, and they kind of, they use that as motivation. So they're a lot healthier this year. Uh, but let's talk about Michael Brantley since he was one of the guys that really was a non-factor last year, very talented player. What's his status going into this year? Uh, that's, that's something everybody wants to know. We always get asked, but I mean, honestly, I don't know who knows for sure. I don't know if the Indians do 100%, even if Michael Brantley knows his timeline for getting back. But right now, it just seems like the same timeline as last year, which is kind of a bad thing on the surface because of how long he was out and how little he played. But it's the same thing. The Indians all spring, they were saying he's right on track. He's doing what it's supposed to. Uh, right now, he's actually taking live batting practice, which is good. Uh, but we still don't know what that actually means because, again, he did this all last season. And if he can play, he's going to be... One of the best left fielders, at least, as long as his eye is still there. He's great at not striking out and uh, making contact. So if he can do that again, that'd be great. 
But yeah, I don't know like exactly where he is or when he'll be back. At, at this point, last year I was pretty optimistic. I thought maybe not opening day, but he'll be back soon and he'll be Michael Brantley again. Um, but this year it's just kind of like I'm, I'm assuming he won't be there and whatever's there is just a bonus for the Indians. What's the, what's the setback for him? I know he's got, it's a shoulder injury, but what's, what's, uh, what's keeping him off the shelf for so long? Yeah, at first it was um, what was what was it? it was a separated shoulder, and then there was an impingement in the shoulder, which is like something getting pinched up there. And then it was it turned into like a bicep issue, and it's just been a, a series of setbacks for him ever since he dove in what was that 2015 at this point when uh, he was in Minnesota and dislocated it, and it's just been a long, rough road back for him. Well, the Indians certainly won't be hurting for offense too much. They uh, made a big splash this past winter by signing uh, former Blue Jays slugger Edwin Encarnacion to a to a long term deal. Uh, was that kind of a surprise for Indians fans that they, the team was going to make a big splash like that? And how does he how do you see him fitting into the lineup this year? Oh, it was definitely a surprise. I think a lot of Indians fans are still kind of gun shy from Nick Swisher and Michael Bourne in the same off season. So seeing the Indians pay almost twice of that to one or not quite twice but like 50 percent more to one player is kind of insane but the fact that he got down so low like three years 60 million at the least is is not much for a player who's been as good as Encarnacion has been over the five years and I mean he hit a career high home runs last season so it was a surprise but it's not a surprise that the Indians did it when it was such a deal I think it's just the fact that he got down to the level where the Indians could sign him where it was surprising it was like towards the end there were there were more and more rumors that they're getting closer they might sign him it it was just kind of a dream, but it happened. And then they did it again, too. They went on another big signing with Boone Logan. So they are not messing around. They got that, that World Series money, apparently, and they're using it, and they're plugging up their hole at first base. So that was their biggest need going in, and I think they filled it, and he's going to fit in really well. Yeah, it was interesting. The market for sluggers really dried up, and, I mean, kudos to the Indians for kind of taking advantage of that market and, and pouncing while they're uh, you know coming off a of World Series. I think that's a good time to kind of – for a team to go all in and, and, and really improve the team. So I, th- I thought that was a great signing for them, and I think he'll fit into that uh, lineup really well. Um, you know, he's not the only slugger in the lineup. I mean, Carlos Santana is probably um, – a, a, he's kind of a curse word here in Kansas City just because he's destroyed the Royals over the last couple of years. Uh, but he's – I believe he's in the last year of his uh, deal before he reaches free agency. Here we're dealing with Eric Hosmer and whether or not he's going to leave Kansas City – uh, is there any talk of Santana staying in Cleveland past this year? I haven't heard any talk from the Indians themselves, and I don't know if they will with the contract that um, Encarnacion has. Santana's trying. He's playing in left field. He's played first base in DH, so he's trying to make himself more available. But I can't imagine that a team with a budget like the Indians are going to pay that much for like two first baseman DHs. So as much as I love him, he's one of my favorite players. And prior to this year, <laughs> for a lot of fans, he was a curse word in Cleveland, too. <laughs> Because he's a player that takes walks, he's patient, and occasionally hit a home run, but he wasn't hitting like record-topping home runs. It was like under 30. When he finally crossed 30, I think more fans are finally on his side now. So now that he's got everybody behind him, now he's going to leave in a year, of course. So <laughs> I want him to come back, but I don't know for sure if he will. When you talk about the Cleveland Indians, of course, we have to talk about that starting rotation. It's really, I think at this point, an embarrassment of riches for Cleveland fans and, and certainly an envy for, for like Royals fans who kind of wish we had those kind of arms that, that can just strike out, it seems like, uh, you know, nine or ten a night. Uh, how, how do you see the rotation kind of shaking out this year? I know we had, uh, you know, some guys coming back from injury. Um, you know, there's some younger guys that kind of stepped up last postseason. Uh, what do you see as a starting five when we, uh, when we start the season in April? Well, I think the big thing and the obvious one, too, there's um, Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco. If, if Carrasco didn't take that ball off his hand from Ian Kensler last season, I, I have to imagine the playoffs would have gone a lot differently. But if those two are healthy, the Indians have a lot of depth, like three and below. They don't have another one or two right ready to go. Like Mike Clevenger's not going to be a number one pitcher. But 
they have a lot of prospects who can fill in as like a four and a five and let Bauer be number three. And I mean, as we saw last postseason, Josh Tomlin, he's a guy who always just kind of sticks around. He he's not over flashy, but he works in the zone well. He gets a lot of strikes. Um, also gives a lot of home runs. But if he can work and not give up so many home runs, he's going to be a good bottom of the order pitcher too. So the big thing is just Carrasco and Kluber staying healthy up there, and Danny Salazar if he comes back healthy. Um, his injury worries me the most, I think, is because it's a lingering thing with his arm. It's not like, I mean, even Tommy Johnson, you know he's had the surgery, so it's fixed. But at this point, we don't know if it's going to be still hampering him when the season starts. So that's going to be a big thing to watch for the Indians, too, I think. Um, he'll be the number three if he's in there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do have to ask about Trevor Bauer a little bit, just because uh, he's had he's he's a colorful character for sure. I mean, we, we saw him get hurt last year by playing with his drones. This past off season, he's gotten into a little bit of trouble tweeting at fans. Uh, Royals fans are a little used to that. I think uh, some Royals fans uh, got it, got into him with the uh, on social media last year. Uh, is he wearing out his welcome at all in Cleveland, or is Indians management kind of telling him to tone it down a little bit, or is it is it just you got to let him be who he is? Uh, I don't know if it's quite wearing out his welcome quite yet. I do get the feeling that the Indians might have talked to him because he kind of crossed the line at one point when he said like. All my teammates have the same political views I do, and even Dan Otero's wife, um, a reliever from the Indians, his wife came out and said, "No, we don't." <laughs> so I think even with his teammates, he crossed the line there and like throwing everybody into his own Twitter arguments. But in general, I like even if I don't agree with him, I like having a player that is that open about like what he thinks and like the interesting on the field stuff he does. Like he'll take a camera and just walk around his pregame stuff. That's really cool talking about pitching. I don't like so much his off-the-field stuff he talks about. The drone stuff is neat, too. But when he gets into, like, politics and stuff, I'm not a huge fan of that. I think quite a few Indians fans are, too. But if he pitches well, then it's not going to matter. But if he's not pitching well, then that's just more fuel to yell at him, I think. Yeah, and I think, like, for players, it's really – they really have to walk a fine line when it comes Mm -hmm. to social media. I know Royals pitcher Danny Duffy was on Twitter and was very popular, and then all of a sudden he wasn't on Twitter. And I don't know if the team had to talk with him or if he just felt he was – you know, exposing too much of himself, uh, or you know, was getting too much, you know, too many yahoos saying bad things at him. Uh, but you know, more recently, he has come back on Twitter saying he wants to do good and trying to promote charities around Kansas City. So, uh, you know, I think I think fans, yeah, I think you're kind of right. Like, as long as you're producing, I think fans will kind of tolerate a certain level of, uh, you know, I don't know, lunkheadedness. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> word for what he's, uh, but you know, but the, the people like, I think, colorful players. And, you know, if Bauer was on our team and it was pitching well, I think we'd probably be pretty okay with what he's doing. But uh, when he's the opposition, you got to look for any any uh, weak <laughs> spots you can. And so, uh, yeah, we'll have to see. Maybe we'll see Trevor Bauer on Twitter this year. <laughs> Although I will say, if you're looking for an Indians player to follow, there's also Jose Ramirez. I don't know if you've seen anything his tweet. I have he's seen tweeted. a couple of tweets, yes. His are always great. He's very good, yes. I, li- I like the guys that are a little creative on Twitter. That's yeah, nice to yeah. see that personality <laughs> from them. Um, yeah, let's talk about the bullpen a little bit. Uh, Andrew Miller, I mean, just an ama- amazing reliever. Uh, you guys are going to have him for a full season this year, which is kind of scary. Uh, how do you see him being deployed by Terry Francona? I don't think we're going to get the playoffs that we got last season, like the two innings every game kind of thing, but he's sticking pretty good to the just keeping him in the high-leverage situations. He's not going to be locked in as a closer. Uh, that role is Cody Allen. I think um, Francona just got kind of lucky with the fact that he already has a great closer in Cody Allen, so he can use Andrew Miller any, everywhere, wherever he wants to. So um, He doesn't have to be just against lefties because Boone Logan's going to do that. So it's going to be – you're going to see Andrew Miller whenever it's needed, which is a great feeling as an Indians fan to know that he's lurking whenever the Royals keep getting all that contact and a guy on second, and I just want him to go away, and he'll finally be able to do it. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a nice warm feeling to have that that dominant reliever to come out yep. of the bullpen. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna miss Wade Davis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tyler uh, Tyler Naquin uh, had a really solid rookie season last year. I, you know, tremendous spring training. I remember uh, just dominated the, the Arizona uh, league. Uh, are there any other Indians rookies you think could emerge this year and be a factor this year? Uh, the big the big one right away is going to be Gandhi Diaz. Uh, he was a Cuban-born player who made a triple-A last season. His big thing through the minors is he's always had a great eye at the plate. He can he draws a ton of walks, um, but he never really had any power, like not even the kind that – not big major league – not big minor league power, but enough that might translate to the majors. But he finally showed that last season, and this season in spring, he's having like <laughs> – I guess we can just call it a Tyler Naquin spring now. that He's been great. Uh, Terry Francona has complimented him several times. So uh, he was drafted as a third baseman. He's played a little bit of left field. I'm, I'm assuming to cover for Michael Brantley if he's still injured. So um, he's going to be kind of like a utility player, almost like what Jose Ramirez was last year. Uh, he can play a little bit of left field, third base, wherever they just need him to be. And he's I'm excited about him to be a rookie. Even though he's not like the highest ceiling guy, he's the one I think is closest to ready. There's, there's also the top prospects like Bradley Zimmer, who really needs to work on not striking out quite as much before he's up. So that's kind of like a midseason thing if he can work it out in AAA. But other than that, it's mostly... If they have the depth, pith- the depth pitchers, uh, but there's no really other position players that are going to merge right away. I think. And Bradley Zimmer, of course, is the brother of Kyle Zimmer, Royals pitcher, and I would really like to see them face each other sometime. Maybe not this year, but maybe next year, because I think that would be really neat. And also, would mean that Kyle Zimmer is finally healthy, which we've been waiting for <laughs> for a long time. Uh, you know, we're still a month away from op- from uh, opening day, uh, but can you give us an idea of what the starting nine will be? Uh, at least what you project will be the starting nine when the Indians start play in April. Yeah, sure. So so at catcher, my dream is Roberto Perez. I don't know what it is. Um, it, it was way before the postseason last season. It was something like 2015. I love Roberto Perez. Just the way he plays defense, he draws a ton of walks. He can occasionally run into a home run. He's not, I guess I can admit, he's not a, the greatest hitter in the world. But um, Jan Gomes is probably going to start at catcher with Roberto as a backup. They're probably almost going to split time and maybe even Roberto will overtake him at some point. But Jan Gomes at center. Uh, or catcher. And then at first base, uh, they've already confirmed that Carlos Santana is going to get the majority of the playing time there. So that means Encarnacion is going to be the DH. That makes sense. Carlos has been okay. He, he looked a little bit better last season than he did in previous years, at least, splitting time with Napoli. Um, second base is Jason Kipnis, obviously, although he's had the shoulder injury in spring, which is kind of worrying based on what's happened with Brantley. But they said he was going to be out for a couple of days, and now it's been more than a week, and he's slated another week. So we'll see there. Uh, shortstop. I don't know if you've heard of Francisco Lindor, but he's probably going to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody taking over him anytime soon. Uh, third base, Jose Ramirez. I would assume pretty easy there. Um, you know, if not, something like him and Yandy Diaz splitting time over there in left field. Again, Diaz, if he comes up or Michael Brantley's healthy, he'll be there. And in center field, Naquin, he might be one side of a platoon that you really don't want him hit against lefties. He has a history in the minors. He's He needs to be a guy who's only hitting against right-handed hitters. So something like Austin Jackson or even Abel Monte platooning with him in center. I think they're going to miss Rajai Davis there quite a bit, uh, just the speed, but they'll make something up with him there. And in right field, Lonnie Chisholm, Brandon Geyer. Um, Chisholm is what he is at this point. He's a platoon bat. Um, he sort of remade himself on defense in right field, kind of like a not nearly as good Alex Gordon kind of thing. And then, yeah, platooning with him is going to be Brandon Geyer, who's, who they got for almost nothing. They got him for Nathan Lukes, who was a, I think he's a shortstop in single A they traded with the Rays, but he's been one of the best hitters against left-handed pitchers like overall in the last three years including mike trout everybody he's he's one of the top like 10 i think he's an amazing against lefties so they'll have half of a really good platoon in right field especially if chisholm hall can be consistent that's going to be a really good position the outfield in general it's going to be kind of um like makeshifted together with just a bunch of platoon bats trying to make consistent players so 
overall, I think the offense is going to be really fun to watch for the Indians as much as it was last season, if not more, because Encarnacion is there. And Geyer has like this weird ability to get hit by pitches. He does. Has anyone ever looked into? I mean, is it just lean over the plate, or what? How does he get so many hit by pitches? He doesn't even have like a terrible lean over the plate. I don't. The dude's just a magnet. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's taken so many though. Yeah, I guess he just doesn't get out. He's, he's slow reaction times. He doesn't get out of the right, way. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so. The Indians, obviously, I think one of the teams favored uh, at least to win the American League pennant this year. Put on, you know, get your crystal ball ready. Uh, how many wins do the Indians win this year, and how deep do they go in the postseason? Um, I would say mid to high 90s isn't completely impossible if everything kind of works and the pitchers stay healthy the whole season. Uh, you remember last season, Carlos Grasco, he was injured early too. So there was a lot of the year where they didn't have their full rotation. If they can manage it this year, if – if Danny Salazar stays healthy, if Yandy Diaz turns out to be a great prospect that comes up and fills in for either an injured Michael Brantley or if maybe if Brantley is healthy and back. So I think mid-90s isn't that impossible, especially with the AL Central most teams rebuilding or the Royals doing whatever they're doing. I don't know the, <laughs> the kind of transition they're in. But, but the Indians, they're going to have, I would say mid-90s, like 96, 97 is what I'm going to put them at. And I don't think another World Series run, if not win, is completely impossible either. Oh, they have the rotation to do it, obviously. They're going to have a better offense this season. So cross my fingers, nobody gets injured. It's it's going to be a fun season. So 96 wins, maybe a World Series win. Yeah, they certainly seem like the team to beat. And, and uh, you know, we're hoping we're just in it with you guys this year. Maybe uh, we can give you guys a run for your money. Uh, but certainly on paper, the Indians look like their heads and tails better than anyone else in the Central Division. But that's why they play the games. And, and uh, the Royals have certainly exceeded expectations before. So... Maybe we'll see them give, uh, you know, I think it would be great if the two teams can be uh, right neck and neck. I think they're two great fan bases, and that would make for a really exciting summer. And uh, uh, we'll have to see. So uh, thanks so much, Matt, for joining us, and uh, good luck this year. And we'll have to have you on uh, again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, great. Great.